This podcast is sponsored by The Christian Way of Life, the new book from Eric Alexander and Alliance Publishing. Find it online at reformedresources.org. What is the Christian way of life, and how can we live it? Some may reply with a list of do's and don'ts, but we need far more than a lecture. We need a Savior. In his new book, The Christian Way of Life, Eric Alexander leads readers down the radiant corridors of Romans 12 through 15, showing how the gospel of redeeming grace empowers us for holy and acceptable service to God. There is no secret in Christian living in a wasting world, only a simple truth. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alliance Publishing is excited to share this new book book with you. Order your copies directly from the Alliance's online resource center, reformedresources.org. That's reformedresources.org. Also available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Order your copy today. The Apostle Paul's missionary undertakings are drawing to a close. As he visits the churches he's established in Macedonia and Asia, he bids farewell and takes with him their collection for their Jewish brothers in Christ in Jerusalem. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. It's a turning point in Paul's ministry. From a church planter to a father in the faith, and with this last act, the apostle hopes to bridge the chasm that's developed between the Jewish and Gentile believers. Stay with us now as Dr. Boyce takes a look at Paul's final visit to the churches he's planted and holds dear and explains how these visits set Paul on the path to his final destination. It's not always possible to say with the kind of neatness or accuracy we would like that new section of Acts begins at a particular chapter. There are transition chapters. I say that because when we come to this 20th chapter, we have in many ways a new beginning. And yet, at the same time, we have a close, a wrap-up of things that we have had before. Certainly, we can say that there is a shift in Paul's ministry noticeable at the beginning of this chapter and much more noticeable as we move on later in the book. Up to this point, Paul has largely been engaging in pioneer missionary activity. He's been going into new areas, and he has been founding churches. Here in these verses, he visits churches that he has already founded. And then as he moves on to Jerusalem, as we know, he's arrested, and then, at least in the remainder of the book, doesn't have the kind of freedom that he had had previously. Oh, there's a change there. What we see in the verses that we're about to look up and study, that is the first 12 verses of chapter 20, is a wrap-up of his missionary work in this particular area of the world. That's not to say that he didn't do anything new. Probably he did. I want to indicate that. Or that even after the book of Acts ends that he didn't have opportunity to do further pioneer missionary work. There is the theory that perhaps he was released from his Roman imprisonment. He went on to Spain as he had planned to do, and if he did that, he certainly founded churches there. But at least so far as the book of Acts is concerned, we've seen him now in these missionary journeys traveling throughout Asia and Macedonia, 
and Greece, founding churches. And here, for the last time in the book, he goes back over the territory, he visits these churches, he gives them final words of teaching and counsel, and then moves on to Rome. And then there's something else that happens as well, a different focus. It doesn't come in as clearly here as it does later, but it's happening here at this period of his life. He was in the midst of a plan to achieve, if possible, a reconciliation or harmony between the Gentile churches that he had been instrumental in establishing and the Jewish church, which had its great focal point in Jerusalem. Now, we know that didn't work very well, and it's interesting. Here was a noble ideal, certainly one that was truly spiritual, the harmony of the Jewish and the Gentile branches of the Christian church. Yet it didn't go very well, but that's what Paul was concerned about. And so, as I said, we see a, a shift in activity. As Luke writes about this, we begin to notice another kind of shift. Up to this point, we have had a focus on the cities, the places where Paul has visited and what happened there. It really was historical in that sense. Now, beginning here, there seems to be a greater emphasis upon what we would call Paul's speeches. This very chapter, we're going to find some important farewell words to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Later on, as Paul is hauled before one secular authority after the other, we find him giving great speeches before these authorities in defense both of himself and of the Christian faith. There are interesting emphases in those speeches. There's more autobiographical data than we have seen before. Paul tells of his conversion in detail and his purposes and why he was in Jerusalem and such things. There's a great emphasis upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Probably there we have a reflection of what was happening in the Gentile ministry of the church as the early preachers were beginning to bring the gospel in increasingly forceful ways to the Gentile community and were thrown back as evidence for their claims upon the truth of the resurrection. And we find as well in these speeches a great emphasis upon the call that God gave Paul to go to the Gentiles and therefore an emphasis upon the expansion of the church into the Gentile areas. Now the result of this, as we saw, was Paul's imprisonment. We have this change. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was imprisoned first in Caesarea for two years. Then he appealed to the emperor. He was sent to Rome, shipwrecked on the way. But when he arrived in Rome, he was imprisoned two years there. Long years of imprisonment. And yet during these years, we also find new opportunities for Paul. Because although Paul was bound, the gospel was not bound, and God continued to bless his ministry even during those years of incarceration. Now these verses, as I said, are verses that give details of what I guess we would call Paul's final tour of the missionary field. He goes back over the churches of Macedonia and some in Asia, no doubt strengthening them, teaching them, dealing with problems, training the leadership, and establishing them in order that they might go on and prosper even when he himself was withdrawn from their midst. Now, it begins by telling us that he left Ephesus where he has been, leaving temporarily, and that he went to Macedonia. Paul 
is doing this, according to Luke, in a very quick way. Luke doesn't give us much in the way of detail. But when we read what Paul himself has written in his letters, we find that this was a period of great personal agony and concern on Paul's part. The chief thing on his heart at this time was his concern for the church at Corinth. He had written his first letter to Corinth from Ephesus, but somewhere along the line during that two-year period of ministry there in Ephesus, word had come to him of various problems in the Corinthian church, the kind of problems that are reflected particularly in the second letter. There were factions in the church. Some were claiming to be followers of Apollos, and so they had an Apollos party, and some were claiming to be followers of Peter. They were a Peter party, and some were claiming to be followers of Paul. They were a Paul party, and then there were the spiritual ones who said, we don't follow any earthly leaders. We are followers of Christ, and so it was a Christ party that was separate. All of these factions were going off in different ways. There was immorality in the church, and there was disorder in the church, the communion service was not very well observed. And all of these things came to trouble Paul, because after all, we have already seen that he spent a good deal of his time in the previous missionary journey there in Corinth. He spent a year and a half, and God had told him that he had many people in that city, and so he poured his time and his energies into establishing a church in this great cosmopolitan center, this economic crossroads of the ancient world. And he was very anxious, after he had written his first letter, to deal with these problems, to find out how the church in Corinth was really doing. Now, he had left Titus in Corinth. And Titus was given the task of dealing with the problem and then reporting back to Paul. Paul was supposed to meet Titus at Troas. And so Paul, as he left Ephesus now and traveled north in the direction of the straits, would lead him across to Macedonia, waited for a time at Troas, and when Titus didn't come, Paul, as he says later in his second letter to the Corinthians, troubled within, went on over the straits, where fortunately he did at last meet this great co-worker. And here the word came to him that what he had been concerned about was not necessary because after he had written his first letter and had dealt with these problems, the Corinthians had responded, responded well, and many of the problems were dealt with. They were reconciled to one another, and with Paul, they had dealt with the immorality in their midst. Paul, as he says, was greatly comforted at the coming of Titus. I suppose that's why he went on and spent as much time as he did in Macedonia, ministering, ministering further. It's also why he wrote the kind of letter he did, 2 Corinthians, encouraged by what had happened. Perhaps there at Philippi, certainly while he was in Macedonia, Paul must have said to himself, well, God is really blessing that church, and so the problems that had bothered me really seem to be resolved. And if that's what's happening, well, I'll continue to leave it in the hands of the local leadership, and I'll go on and see what I can do here in Macedonia before I have to move on down to Corinth for the winter. So he spent the summer traveling around in Macedonia. He refers to it at the very end of Romans in the 15th chapter, verse 19. He says that the gospel expanded there by his hand all the way from Jerusalem, where he had started out, of course, long ago, to Illyricum, which is in the western area of Macedonia. So 
He probably did some pioneer work there, although his chief work was visiting the churches that he had already established. And then, after having written 2 Corinthians, he made his way on down to Corinth where he spent the winter. That would mean the months of December, January, and February when the seas were too rough for boats to travel. And he had made up his mind that if possible, he was going to get back to Jerusalem for Passover in the spring. Now, as it turned out, he didn't get there. When he was uh, about to leave and sail for Jerusalem, the word came that the Jews of Corinth, who were very stirred up against him, had a plot to take his life. There's not a great deal said about this, but it's not hard to imagine what was involved. The Jews going to Jerusalem would have gone on what we would call a pilgrim ship. It would be a ship carrying cargo, but they would take aboard as many passengers as possible. It would be crowded in order to keep the fares low, and it would be quite possible in a crowded condition like that upon a pilgrim ship for someone who had been commissioned by those who were Paul's fierce enemies simply to kill him during the course of some dark night at sea. Perhaps strangle him or kill him with a knife or push him overboard and he'd be lost at sea. Well, the word came to Paul that that was afoot, and so he decided rather than going by sea, he'd return overland through Macedonia, he'd visit those churches once again, and then later and from another port he'd make his way on to Jerusalem. Now we're told at this point about this team that joined him there and which together went up to Jerusalem. It's a rather impressive group of people, and the occasion was itself impressive. Not a great deal is said about it here, but we know from Paul's letters that he had been traveling through these Gentile areas and among the churches he had founded in order to take up an offering which he was going to bring with this company to Jerusalem to help out the Jerusalem saints. Time of famine and poverty had come to the church in Jerusalem, and undoubtedly, Paul doesn't always say it in so many words, but undoubtedly what Paul had in mind was that by this tangible act of concern for the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem, he would bridge the gap which he certainly saw developing between the Jewish and the Gentile branches of the church. And perhaps he would even be able to demonstrate something of the love of the Gentile churches to the Jews in Jerusalem at large. So that seeing this love and compassion, this true social concern of the people, they might be one to Jesus Christ. Now he got a little heavy-handed about it at times, some people think, almost as it were ordering a number of the Gentile churches to give. But they did give, and the money was collected, and it was in the company of these men that it was sent. Verse 4 of the chapter introduces us to this company says that Paul was accompanied on this occasion by Sopater, who was the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, and Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, and Gaius from Derbe, and Timothy, who was from Lystra, though it doesn't mention the word, and from the province of Asia, where Ephesus was situated, Tychicus and Trophimus. These men, Luke says, went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Now there's that plural again, and it indicates that at this point Luke himself joined the company. It's worth reflecting on these men a little bit. There was Berea. Berea was the town, you know, where 
we're told they were more noble even than those of Thessalonica because they diligently searched the scriptures to see whether the things Paul was teaching them from the Old Testament concerning Jesus of Nazareth were true. These were real Bible students and it's to be expected and it happened that out of a group of people like that a strong church was established and then they had a, an elder, a leader, this man Sopater who they sent along. Thessalonica, that church in Macedonia but on the coast, the site that is today known as Slonica, a variation of the word, that place produced Aristarchus and Secundus. I don't know if this is intentional, but that is a very interesting combination of names, Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus is a name that means literally very much like what it seems to mean in English, aristocracy. The first part of it is a Greek word meaning the best, and the second part is a word meaning rule. So an aristocracy is a form of government in which rule is by the best possible people. Of course, that generally means by those who are in positions of power and who regard themselves as the best, not necessarily the case that they are. At any rate, if the name has any kind of literal meaning, it would seem to suggest that this man was from what we would call the upper crust of society. At least it would be a most unusual name to give a child if you were poor or you were in a level of society that had very little influence at all. You can see a rich man, an influential man, naming his son Aristarchus. That's the first name. The second is exactly the opposite, secundus. That word means second. It's a Latin word. And you say, why would anybody be named second or number two? Well, these were the kind of names that were often given to slaves. Sometimes the slaves didn't have a name, and in a prosperous Latin or Greek household, you would have a slave who was the number one slave in charge of all the other slaves, and he would be called primus, number one. And then you would have his understudy, the one who worked for him and actually carried out all the things that the number one had to do, and this man was number two. He was called Secundus. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know for certain that Aristarchus was from the aristocracy, and we don't know that Secundus was a slave, but it would seem that this is the case probably a freed slave, because if he was still a slave, unless he was a slave for a Christian master who was willing to let him go on the journey, it would be unlikely that he would be allowed to go. But probably a man from that background. So here you see Thessalonica, this great church in Macedonia, said, let's send men along with Paul, representing us, bearing this offering up to the church at Jerusalem, who are representative of our congregation. Let's send someone who represents the nobility, because we have a few like that here. And let's send Secundus, too, to represent those who are the majority, because most of us are not people of very high estate. And so those two were sent along. Gaius went from Derby. Timothy, we know about. He traveled with Paul and was his understudy. And then from the province of Asia, there was Tychicus and Trophimus. People who look at this and who understand it in terms of the geography raise the question, which you yourself will raise if you think about it carefully enough, if these are to be the representatives from the great Gentile churches, where 
in this list are the representatives from Philippi, one of the great strong churches in Macedonia, and where in this list is a representative from Corinth itself, where Paul spent a year and six months. It's a good question, isn't it? You have Derby represented and Lystra, those towns in Galatia. You have Thessalonica represented from Macedonia and Berea from the lower portions of Greece, but where is Philippi and where is Corinth? Well, it may be, as we reflect on this, since at this point Luke begins to indicate that he's present by referring to the company as we rather than they, that Luke himself represented Philippi. It would be characteristic of Luke. It seems to be characteristic of Luke not to mention himself. And if that is the case, well, then one of those great cities is covered. What about Corinth? One of the commentators suggests that here we have a clue that things had not worked out well at Corinth. That Corinth was divided and was alienated from Paul. Paul had written to them in his letters about this offering that he was trying to take. Perhaps they had resisted his suggestions that they take up an offering for the Jews, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And perhaps they were alienated from Paul. And when the time came to send a representative with the offering, they just had no offering and they had no one to send. There's some grounds for thinking that was possible. And yet, to judge from Paul's letters and the encouragement that he had from that church, it is quite possible that something else happened. When Paul got back there that winter and was ministering among them in the months of December, January and February, the time came for him to leave, and they had the offering. They might have said something like this. They might have said, Paul, you are such a beloved pastor here among us that we would really like you to represent our church. Why don't you go and be one of the party and you? We trust you. Why don't you carry the offering up from the church here in Corinth? We don't know the answer to that, but at any rate, here was this great company that set out. Before they actually leave, we have a little insight into a day of worship in this town of Troas. Paul was delayed there seven days. It doesn't say why, but probably because the winds were unfavorable or the ship was taking on cargo and couldn't go. At any rate, there was a delay. During the passage of those seven days, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, our Sunday rolled around and the Christians got together. I find here not only a glimpse into the worship of the people in this city, but also an indication of the elements that are generally present and should be present in Christian worship. First of all, it's significant that this first day of the week is mentioned, Sunday. You know, of course, that it had been the tradition of the Jews and continues to be the tradition of the Jews even to our own time to worship on the seventh day of the week or the Sabbath. This is prescribed in the Old Testament. It's part of the Decalogue. It's what you would expect Old Testament individuals to do and those who follow from it. And when we come into the New Testament, we find almost automatically, and it would seem almost without any thought, that the Christians most of whom in the early days were Jews and who were used to worshiping at least once a week, just automatically switched their natural day of worship from the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday or the first day of the week. That's interesting. 
First of all, it is quite clearly a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened on the first day of the week. It would seem that almost instinctively the Christians recognized that here was a new beginning. When Christ rose from the dead, old things really had changed and passed away, and a new era had begun. And so they began to worship not on the old day, the Sabbath, but on the Lord's day, which is what they called it. So this change in worship, this worship on the first day of the week, was a result of the resurrection. And then secondly, it is also, if you think about it, a proof of the resurrection. I've sometimes said, often at Easter time, talking about the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there are many of them. The empty tomb, the grave clothes, the changed character of the disciples, the inability to explain the empty tomb by any other means, and so on. All these and others are many powerful evidences for the factual nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But among these many evidences, there is the change of the day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. Why in the world would that ever happen? Particularly, why would that ever happen among Jews who made up the early Christian congregations and who were just trained by centuries of tradition to worship on the Sabbath? Why would they instinctively change from Saturday to Sunday and begin worshiping there as we find them doing here in the passage. There's only one explanation. Jesus literally rose from the dead on that first day. And so the very fact that without argument, without any lengthy explanation of why it happened or took place, without any of those things, the very fact that Christians began to worship on that day is a great evidence that Jesus was raised on that day and that it was a real resurrection. So that's the first thing we notice. Second thing we notice about this particular Lord's Day or Sunday is the teaching that they had, in this case teaching by the Apostle Paul. It would be what we would call the equivalent of the sermon or the exposition of the Word of God. From the very beginning, you see, this has had a prime part in Christian services. Now, not everybody can talk as long as Paul talked. We don't know when he began. I guess it would be after the work day when everybody got together there in this upper room of the house, maybe 7 o'clock at night, maybe a little later, 7.30, when everybody got finished and arrived there. But at any rate, he started in in the evening, and he was still going strong, teaching, preaching his sermon at midnight. Now, of course, he had had a lot of practice of that in Ephesus. We know from the marginal note of the text there, if it's valid reference, that he began teaching in the hall that he had rented at 10 in the morning and he went till 4 in the afternoon. So he was used to doing about six hours of good lecture every day. And here on this occasion, occasion which he understood to be probably the last time that he would be with these Christians, he took a long, long time to teach them. Whenever Christian worship or Christian communities shift from that emphasis. Whenever they begin to think of worship as chiefly entertainment, whenever they begin to think that what is accomplished in worship is essentially an emotional response that can be worked up by the singing of a certain kind of hymn or chorus, whenever they think that what's important is a series of testimonies, and they get people to tell moving stories of how they were lost in sin with a great deal of emphasis upon the sin, and how they were brought out of that by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. When they substitute that in their worship, well, the church 
begins to be weakened and sometimes even to die. Because you see, the power of God is not in our emotions and it's not in our experience. Well, the power of God does work in us and experiences result. The power of God is in the Word of God. That's what God has chosen to bless, and that's why in Christian services we emphasize it. Not the eloquence of the preacher, either. It's not even the authority of the preacher, but it's the Word of God. And that's what God blesses, and He does bless it. And so you had that here at Troas. There's also an observance of the Lord's Supper, because you see, that's what they, they did late in the evening. Paul preached first. In the Presbyterian Church, great emphasis is placed upon that, or is not to be the observance of the Lord's Supper without preaching, the explanation of it and the teaching of the gospel in the Word. That's to be the basis. But there was the Lord's Supper, and they observed that. And then finally, a fourth thing. I've talked about it being the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and the teaching and the Lord's Supper. The final thing you notice toward the end of this is that Paul, in verse 11, continued even after the observance of the Lord's Supper, talking with them in an informal way until daylight. Now, the word that is used there for talking is a different word from the word that is used earlier for his speaking to them or his talking to them. In the earlier instance, verse 7, those words indicate formal teaching. Dialogo is one of the words. We get our word dialogue from it, and it is a very sustained, reasoned, careful kind of teaching situation. But uh, toward the end, the word changes, and it means informal talking, and undoubtedly was connected with informal fellowship. I found that often to be true. It's not always true in the kind of church services we have, but when I have spoken in other places especially if I've been there for a particular teaching ministry and I have gone on for a long period of time. Afterwards, we'll have a time of fellowship and it frequently falls out that people have a variety of questions. And then things take place on a less formal but nevertheless a very helpful level. And that's what went on here. The reason I emphasize all this is that if you remember back toward the beginning of the book of Acts, we had almost the same thing early on in the second chapter. Toward the end of the second chapter, after Pentecost, when the church was established in Jerusalem, Acts 2, verse 42, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now that is precisely what we find here. The only one of the four elements that's mentioned in Acts 2.42 that is not mentioned in Acts 20 is prayer, and undoubtedly that's to be understood. Moreover, in Acts 2, it's formal to the prayers. It refers there to formal worship, and this meeting that they had had its own formal aspects, so that was involved too. And the other things are all involved. You see, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. It would seem, wouldn't it, that that is natural to Christian people. Wherever you go, wherever the gospel is penetrated, wherever churches have been established, there Christians naturally come together to hear the Word of God expounded, to worship around the communion table, eating of the bread and partaking of the wine that represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and then fellowshipping with one another, sharing with one another the things that they hold in common and that God is doing in their lives. Well, I'm sure you're wondering how I could have talked about these 12 verses of Acts 20 all this time and still not have mentioned Eutychus. 
I'm very glad this story is told because it indicates that sometimes even people fell asleep when Paul was preaching. I'm sure Paul wasn't boring. I'm sure that Paul was not irrelevant. I'm sure that Paul did not turn people off with the simplicity of the kind of things he was trying to teach them from the Word. Well, Paul taught well and Paul taught deeply, but sometimes, you know, in spite of the best teaching, the flesh is weak even though the Spirit is willing. And that's what happened to this poor fellow Eutychus. He was sitting on a window ledge up about the third story where they were meeting and the lights were flickering. It's an interesting detail that Luke brings in. The lights were flickering, no doubt. The air was heavy. It was a hot spring moving into summer night. And this man Eutychus got drowsier and drowsier and finally he fell. Was Eutychus dead? There are different opinions on that. It says in verse 9, he was picked up dead. Paul, when he got to him, said, don't be alarmed, he's alive. And people have said, well, they thought he was dead, but when Paul got to him, Paul assured them he was alive. Other people say he was dead, but when Paul got to him, there was a resurrection. God worked through Paul, and he was alive. I suppose that is a question that we can't entirely resolve. Luke was present. He was a physician, and Luke is writing this, and if Luke says he was dead, I'm willing to believe that he was dead. But not a great deal is made of it, and maybe that's merely a way of saying that they thought he was. At any rate, he looked dead. Things weren't good. It was after Paul came to him that he revived. He was taken home, and they were comforted. I don't know the significance of all of that unless God, with a little chuckle, just stuck it in there to encourage preachers like me when people say, I almost fell asleep this morning or I almost fell asleep last night. But it may be that the significance of it is something like this. Paul is not going to see them again. This is a scene of farewell. And they're observing the Lord's Supper, and it's the last time they're going to observe the Lord's Supper together until they observe it together in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And before that happens, they're all going to die. They're going to die, but after that, there's the resurrection, and they will be together again in glory. Maybe this fall of Eutychus and his apparent resurrection is a picture of that. And if it is, it's a picture from which we can take heart. We're together now, and God willing, we may be together for a long, long time. But death does intervene. It comes to us one by one, and there does come the moment when we find it necessary to say goodbye to one another in this life. If this life were all there is, that would be a scene of unredeemable gloom. But it's not for Christians. There is a resurrection, and there's comfort in the resurrection. And we look forward to the day when these churches, which have begun here below, will be perfected in heaven. And all of the diverse personalities and opinions and characters will all be made one and perfect in Jesus Christ. I find that encouraging. We know, because we know the end of the story, that the Apostle Paul is going to go on from here to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was going to be attacked and arrested and beaten 
and imprisoned, and yet that wasn't the end. Oh, he was going to lose his life. In Rome, he was going to be beheaded, but even that was not the end. Paul himself said we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. This life has them. There are many sufferings here, many things we go through, many disappointments, many partings, many sad goodbyes, but it's not the end. God, who has begun a good work in you here, will keep on perfecting it under the day of Jesus Christ, and the time is coming when we will be with Him there. Our Father, bless this study to our hearts. We're not Paul. We don't preach as he did. We haven't achieved what he achieved, but you've given us the task of ministering to others, and it is our joy to know that those whom you call to Jesus Christ through our witness will, by your power, one day be with us in heaven as we and the redeemed from all the ages bow down before the throne of Jesus Christ and give him the glory for all he has done. Praise to his name now and ever. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.